Welcome everybody to the very first podcast of the AWS User Group Melbourne. Due to the unfortunate fact that everybody has to stay physically distant from each other, we decided to start a podcast like this in order to at least have some more interaction with each other. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll have different subjects every week. This can be um, a news update like this very first podcast or maybe a background on a community member, something they did, or maybe even some deep dives into some of the previous presentations that have been given. Today, we'll start with our usual What's New segment that we always have at the meetup itself. And for this, I'm joined by my good friends Guy and Jean-Manuel. Yeah, I'm Guy Morton, and I'm working as a solution architect and exclusively in AWS and yep, having a whale of a time. Okay, um, so I'm John Manuel Becker. I'm the practice director for a consulting firm. We are specialized in AWS and I love uh, the cloud platform. Cool, thank you. And because I skipped myself, I am Arjen Swartz, um, a platform engineer also focused on AWS. And I help run the AWS user group meetup in Melbourne. Usually for the, at the meetup, We'll start our What's New section with a finally in Sydney, but there's obviously something else that we should briefly discuss with the COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic. There has obviously been a lot of impact. This means that on the AWS side, things like summits have been cancelled and meetups, not just the one in Melbourne, but all over the world have all been impacted and cancelled or switched to online versions. Obviously, it's not limited to AWS. There's a lot of things that it impacts. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think the, the the interesting thing about this, obviously, is it's more of a cultural thing than a than a technology thing. I suppose it, it's a big change, uh, and it's a, sort of been sort of forced upon everybody. The you know, all the remote work changes. You know, it's really forcing a lot of um, bosses, I guess, to rethink how they how they think about their workforce and how they, you know, allow their workforce to work. I know that some people who have been, you know, working from home have, have reported better productivity than before. And probably there's also people who find it very difficult to be productive. So I guess, um, you know, what, what, what I sort of think may come out of this from a sort of cultural point of view, I suppose, is that people may rethink um, some of the things that were just, you know, received wisdom, you know, you have to have people working in an office, you have to have an open plan office and all the rest of it. So I think if that happens, that, that you know, that would be one, you know, positive outcome out of something which is obviously, you know, a pretty terrible thing f- for the most part. But I suppose, you know, it's, it's, it's good to also try and imagine a silver lining, I suppose, is how I feel about it. Yeah, for us, I think we are in a very lucky industry where we were able to transition working from home quite easily because we have already all the tools and all the, you know, video conferences and the used to work from home. Uh, some other industry obviously uh, are really suffering. Uh, and um, I think we, we are part of the lucky one working in the cloud, born in the cloud uh, type of consulting. So yeah, tough time for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely in the lucky set of, uh, in terms of our work. Um, but I guess, I guess the opportunity though, too, is to see how this can, how this sort of change that's being forced on everybody could potentially improve the lives of other people too. I mean, obviously there's some people who are going to be negatively impacted on this and it's easy to be flippant, but, um, 
you know, there's people who are working in industries that essentially shut down and they've got no work. And that's a tragedy for everybody. But if it, if it does also, I guess, mean that some stuff that, you know, you know, should be rethought gets rethought, you know, both politically and economically. Um, I think, you know, that's hopefully, hopefully that we'll, we'll be in a better place at, at the other side of this. So AWS is doing a lot of things to help on the COVID. Uh, Arjun, you want to talk about it? So AWS also obviously has a lot of services that can help with working from home and staying connected. These are office tools, so to speak. So there's things like workspaces, WorkDocs, Chime, Connects, all of those that in one way or another help you with not being in a physical office. Yeah, and I think, um, the, you know, the interesting thing about that too is how services that have been sort of a, a cloud-based, like, like Connect as a call center, how that's this customers turning to that because their current situation is they've got you know phone lines terminating in on a PABX in their office with people connected to phones actually having to turn up and, and sit at a desk in order to do their work and you know having a cloud-based um, solution has has you know has been a godsend for a lot of those sorts of people because they can can actually continue to work and work remotely. So, I mean, that's kind of a good news story, I think, you know, when, when, when that sort of uh, technology solutions can be applied to, to problems that otherwise don't have a solution. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing worth mentioning uh, quickly, it's not AWS-specific, but there is a COVID-19 hackathon. I haven't myself looked at it yet, but it's uh, there's a link in the show notes. If you want to see the details, or else, um, it was also linked to from the AWS news blog. Yeah, and I think that's a you know, and again to see the sort of a the silver lining of of an event like this, you know, what's great to see is people coming together with ideas to help. Um, and you know, I think AWS, to their credit, have probably they're, they're sort of pulling their weight pretty well in terms of um, you know pitching in with these kinds of things and. The uh, thing you haven't mentioned, but, you know, I'll mention it is the 50 free workspaces they're offering at the moment. They're offering uh, some free access to work docs, you know, they're, and they're providing some uh, support to also businesses that are impacted that are actually working on the front line of COVID-19. So, you know, they're, 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 they are sort of being good corporate citizens, I think, um, with this kind of thing going on. And I think the, the, the hackathon participation is part of that. But yeah, I mean, it's big. Good, good thing for people to get involved in if they've got the time and skills to, to do so. And we're all working from home now, um, so that gives us a bit more time anyway. Ha! <laughs> if only that were true. <laughs> Let's move on to a bit more happy tidings. Mm-hmm. As I said, usually we start with finally in Sydney. That This means for those of you who are new who have not joined the meetup itself before, finally in Sydney means services that were previously available in other regions and have now finally become available to us who are mostly working in the Sydney region. Today, we can talk about three of those. The big one probably is Control Tower. Yeah, Control Tower. Yeah, it was in uh, US East, uh, Virginia and Ohio and Oregon and Ireland, and now for the first time in Sydney. So we're quite, quite lucky with that. Um, I've got certain view on Control Towers. Maybe it's not that a mature product right now. It works great to create account, but it has no API. 
um, you know, CNI, it's all clicking around, still have a very bad networking. It, it worked great for a sandbox type of design where you're going to deploy the same VPC over and over and over. But for real enterprise, it just gives you really the really bare basic of what uh, an org should look like. So fortunately, there is good product as well I've been really, really this month is uh, single state account provisioning that you can now create more accounts quite quickly through the console. And uh, you have as well a customization solution offered by AWS who allow you to deploy your own stack sets, your own SCPs, your own configurables, because the basic of Control Tower is very, very light. So that's my view to Will it be an enterprise product? He, he need to step up, and then for that you need to plug in a lot of your own code on top of Control Tower to be an enterprise grade product. Yeah, and the other limitation, of course, still with Control Tower is that it's only for greenfield. You can't import existing accounts or organizations into it yet. Yeah, not yet. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And I, I know there is uh, a lot of push from AWS to have that product uh, available to ingest new accounts. Yeah, that's happening probably next in the next six months. And an API is coming as well, I believe. You have to wait a bit longer for an API, I think. I think 12 months plus, probably. Yeah. That's what everyone wants. It's what we always want. Yeah. So um, another service that came out is Amazon Forecast. Um, this is the machine learning tool that you hook up to your own web shop or things like that and allows you then forecasts expected demand and things like that. I suspect it might not be as accurate at the moment as it usually is. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what, what it says, uh, you know, for like chemists or something who have like a stable demand and suddenly they got through the roof. Um, mm. and how you can adapt to that. That would be interesting uh, if that AI product is that good. I admit I would have been very, very impressed if it correctly interpreted the toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> no, Nobody saw that coming. And the last service that we got was AWS Migration Hub. I've never used this one myself. Are you too more familiar with it? Yeah, I know the product. I used the overseas one before because you could still plug in different region, import and stuff like that. So you just have the dashboard. So it's a, it's a nice dashboard uh, that you can use to track your migration. You can do discovery with a VMware connector and then start grouping your servers into application pool and then see, you know, how you're going to go through your migration in the next six months. So it's not bad. It's a good reporting tool, but uh, migration it's a hard stuff to do, um, so it needs to be planned way in advance. And you can plug in not only AWS product like SMS, uh, the Server Migration Service, and DMS, but you can plug in as well Cloud Endure, which is you know a, a AWS product, and then ATA Data and, and another product to be able to report in one dashboard where you are on your migration. Uh, I'm sure high-level CIO would like to see where the migration pattern is. It's very lift and shift focused, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who's the who's the audience for it, do you think, Jam? Yeah, really lift and shift type of product, take an ROI from VMware and move it to AWS with a new AMI and, and redeploy that machine. The good part is you can do application grouping that you couldn't do before. So before you had to migrate machine per machine and then hope that they're all going to arrive at the same time with different disk space, that was not very good. Now you can all migrate them in the same kind of migration windows through that product. But who is it for, for people who have, Maybe, you know, 150, 200 servers, they want to migrate that to AWS quite quickly. Data center exit style. For people who want to DevOps and, you know, 
refactoring or replatforming uh, to use the cloud in its full strength is probably not the right product. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. Cool. Let's move on to the next section. We usually divide uh, the news up into rough groupings. So we'll go through these one by one. We'll have more than we'll actually discuss, but links will be available in the show notes. Or if you're watching it on YouTube, you will see some slides. We'll start with the serverless section. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the probably the thing that, that I'm kind of uh, most interested in here is the API Gateway uh, GA release of... Um, of the new HTTP APIs and that um, cloud map integrations. Uh, I think that's, that's probably got some uses in the customers uh, that I, I'm working with. One that I actually find interesting is the serverless application repository support for sharing applications within an organization. So the SAR isn't the most used tool, I believe, but it allows you to store a serverless function to in a central place, and if you can easily share that within an organization, that it can that it can be managed, that the same versions will be deployed across all accounts. I can see some use cases for that. It's still missing some other features like forcing updates, things like that. But it's a good step in and something that I have wanted to see show up there. Hmm. Hey, cool. It's nice that Lambda at Edge now supports those, uh, the, you know, the later versions of Node and Python. That just from a from a code management point of view, I guess it's nice to sort of be up to the up to the most recent versions, or maybe not most recent, but stable versions of those. That's a nice to have, I guess. That is definitely good. Although I've heard some comments that the Node 12 seems to be a bit slower than Node 10 was. So it, yeah, it will be depending on the use case, I think whether or not it will be useful. The next part is containers. I know that both of you are super fans of anything to do with containers. <laughs> I, I mean, I like I, I liked reading about uh, Amazon's ventures into OS-type level stuff, so I was interested in Bottle Rocket. So, you know, that seems like it, it's sort of uh, another example of them kind of working in that space, uh, optimizing the OS for their customers. Yeah. For those of you who don't know it, Bottle Rocket is basically a new Linux-based operating system that AWS is building. It's in beta right now, I believe. It's open source and everything, and it's built from the ground up just for managing containers. So it's similar in scope to other solutions that you might be familiar with, like CoreOS. The, the, the interesting thing about this one to, to me is, is how it kind of, to some extent, seems to cut across their container strategy with, you know, ECS and EKS, you would have thought that Amazon would not be creating a any sort of encouragement for people to be running up EC2 instances to run containers on. Is there a is there a particular use case for, for that 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 they are trying to support? Um why I mean why wouldn't they just say to everybody, don't do that? Use ECS. Or use Fargate, yeah. Yeah, or use Fargate, that's right. Yeah. I mean I can understand them developing something for their own internal use. In the end even with ECS and EKS, you still need to run the instances where you run those containers on something. And Bottle Rocket means you've got a more secure and lightweight way of running it. So you have less overhead than the current standard ECS images, which are based on Amazon Linux 2. Yeah. And may have something stripped out of it, but stripping out things 
is from a security posture always um, less secure than building it from the ground up to be to contain as little as possible yeah right so so is this a case of them sort of um building something for themselves presumably this is going to be used in ecs and eks at some point in the future um so it's a case of them maybe beta testing it with whoever wants to run it uh as an ami and run their own container orchestration over the top and um and then when you know, when it's sort of ready for prime time they'll use it in their own in their own services is that what you would expect yeah i fully suspect that at some point these will replace the ecs optimized images that those ECS optimized images basically become bottle rocket images, and EKS is supported right now as well. So you can de- you can deploy your EKS with I'm just checking that own AMI with that. So yeah, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's all pretty good. Some other updates on the container side: um, EKS support for Kubernetes 1.15. That's nice. One other thing that I found quite nice, even though it has a very limited use case, is end-to-end encryption for AppMesh. If you use surface meshes, one of the common complaints about AppMesh was always that it didn't have an end-to-end encryption option. Other surface meshes, like an Istio, do have that. Now AppMesh has it. I believe it, by default, would use Private Certificate Manager, which is not cheap to use. But if you have need for the end-to-end encryption, you're probably willing to pay for it. Yeah, and it's not cheap because you can't share it as well, right? So people need to know that you cannot share the private security manager. You need to have it inside your VPC. So you can't have one for your organization share through share services. It need to be in each of your VPCs. Uh, it's around $400 a month. So great product, but if you need, yeah, TLS on between your containers, that's, that's quite expensive, like Arjun said. Cool. Let's have a look at some easy to VPC based items. Interesting one that just came out is that easy to hibernation now works with T2 instances. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. You can have Amazon Linux, Linux 2, Ubuntu 16, 18, Windows servers, which before was not supported, R2, 16, and 19. Bit of limitations for Windows. You can't have a machine bigger than 16 gig of RAM to manage that hibernation which it should be fine with T2. And then for the rest, it's 150 gig of RAM uh, to be able to hibernate them. So again, you don't pay for compute, just pay for the EPS cost, which is pretty cool. Yeah, one thing I found interesting here, though, that it's the T2 instances and not the T3, which are still not supported for this. Yeah, yeah it's true, yeah. Now, who should use T2 today? Everybody should use T3, right? Yeah. Yes, on the one hand, I would say yes. On the other, the T3 instances are not in the free tier, while the T2 instances are. That's true. Oh, right. Yeah, it's true. Which is another one of those things that kind of surprises me. Hmm. Yeah, it sort of surprised me that that this is available on T2s first. That does seem odd. I was just going to say, I I imagine that everyone got excited to see that LightSail now supports resource monitoring, alarming, and notifications. Oh, yes. Um, I um, I was honestly very surprised that that was not yet the case. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I haven't yet sort of really f- in my own mind put Lightsail in in context. I guess of of who it's for. I actually used it once, and uh, you know it did what it was was set on the tin. But but I'm just like who is the who is the audience for for that? I I had a case uh, happen in my previous uh, job was for a big uni where they wanted what price for every of the researchers they wanted 
uh, all sorts of different small kind of blogs, collection and stuff like that. So instead of having the researcher as, asking the IT team, or can you build me a WordPress instance, uh, where they were picking them a Lightsail account and they were taking care of that themselves. Um, so that could be a use case. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's cheap, but it's not really good. <laughs> it's not scaling. Uh, and if you have an enterprise, you have already, you know, your VPC, you have already your direct connect and all of that. So that's not, uh, again, a business case for a large enterprise. But, you know, uh, that for a small guy who wants to do a blog quickly, maybe like that is a good product. And there were VPC endpoint policies now that you can set for your EC2 APIs. Has either of you played around with them? Yeah, I, I look at at the dark, I didn't play around yet, but uh, I think that's a good way of securing your EC2 when you have uh, an endpoint inside your VPC to do EC2 stuff. Uh, one of the examples given was you forbid anybody to create an instance if the EBS volume is not encrypted. So if you have your EC2 instance running inside that VPC, you make a call to the EC2 API through the endpoint, the endpoint will follow the IAM policy you apply on the endpoint and then block people to do the wrong thing. Um, so in the security point of view, if someone hack your machine remotely, then you won't be able to have EC2 star star and start creating stuff everywhere. You can really limit the function of the EC2 instance to do just the role you ask that EC2 instance to do, to, to create a machine or to terminate a machine, depending what, what uh, you use that API for. So that, I think that's a very nice enhancement in security to lock down your EC2 instance in there. Certainly sounds like a good change. And speaking of security, let's have a look at some other purely security-related features. So the I, I was interested in the WAF anonymous IP list. Uh, that that's kind of seems kind of cool. Uh, I'm interested to know how they manage that list. But essentially the idea is that you can block anonymous IPs via your WAF. Um, so... If someone's coming in on a VPN and using a sort of anonymizing service or their Tor nodes or whatever, the uh, WAF can can basically detect that and block or allow traffic based on what you want to what your rules say. So yeah, it's a, it's a AWS managed rules, right? So you need to use the WAF two. You can't use that on the WAF one. Um, and uh, there is a lot of website where they publish the Tor nodes IP proxies, uh, all the different VPN nodes and stuff like that. So I haven't tested it with different VPN to see if that block certain VPN, but I think it's a very good initiative. AWS used to have the IP blacklist already, and that's adding another level of security where you don't want people to anonymize themselves and then try to do SSRF injection or attack your website. I think that's, uh, that's interesting. And they're free, free rules. So just add them to your WAF too. And then uh, you can play around. Yeah. I'll be adding that later on today. <laughs> <laughs> Another one is config. I, I love AWS config for compliance across all the accounts. Uh, now you can uh, have, if you enable your config aggregator, which is uh, one more level above your AWS config into the account, uh, be able to run queries across all your accounts, across all your regions. So. For people who are very, you know, compliance conscious and they want to maintain compliance uh, using AWS config uh, query is pretty cool. However, it's still very manual. So um, I think you need to think about, can I run the Lambda function to do that? Can I export that to a SNS or send an email with my, my compliance report every day to certain 
kind of security team or something. So, but the the function is there and it's really good. Can compare stuff from yesterday and all sorts of things with SQL queries. So it's good. Definitely good. The other security related things are more small tweaks. An interesting one that, again, for compliance reasons can be quite useful is the additional option for a one hour backup interval for your EBS volumes using the data lifecycle manager. Yeah, before it was two, three, four, six, eight hours, something like that. Uh, now having one hour, I think that that's becoming more common. Um, I'm still a bit confused with AWS Backup and Data Lifecycle Manager. They do the same thing now, and Data Lifecycle Manager is focusing on EBS, but still can backup EC2. I mean, it's, it's a bit a weird product uh, when you look at AWS Backup as well. Yeah, it is. It's like they um, they have a, have they have another go at making the product, and yeah, then there's this overlap, and then yeah, you sort of which one is it? What what should I do? Which which one's the right way to do it? Yeah, at some point they'll probably have the same feature set and one of them, well, most likely, um, I suspect that backup will stick around as it supports a lot more services. Yeah, yeah. The other good thing is GuardDuty price reduction. Uh, a bit cheaper, but not for us. I mean, it's, you need to do 10,000 gig a month to get to that free tier, uh, that, that reduced pricing tier. Uh, but still, you have 30 days and I recommend put GuardDuty on every account. It costs most nothing. In my account, I think it costs me a dollar a month. And he found so much stuff that's really a good product. Yeah, for sure. Then on the developer and operation side, some control tower improvements that we already mentioned when we talked about it coming to Australia. So that's great to see. Another one that I always like to call out is any um, improvements to code commit. In this case, they have a new Git credential helper, which should theoretically make it slightly easier to pull or to, to push your code into code commit the thing in this uh, this list that, that appeals to me is the uh, which I know will get a workout is the app config integration with s3 um, so previously app config would only was only integrated with um, systems manager or systems manager documents and now with this integration you can have uh, basically larger configuration files stored on s3 that you can use through app config have you used AppConfig much yourself, or no? It's 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 one of those things that customers have looked at a few times. They've found the limitations of it a bit a bit. Um, well, they've they've essentially dropped the idea of using it, partly because of the the sort of the constraints on it. I mean, I think making it making it more flexible, giving it more, uh, creating more options for how it can work, I think will will probably help people find uses for it. It's still very focused on, you know, change management and pets versus cattle, right? So it's still really focusing on, on upgrading or the same machine instead of destroying and recreating and auto-scaling group and stuff like that. But yeah. Cool. Um, last thing that might be worth calling out is the ability for CloudWatch to combine multiple alarms. So that if you have a lot of alarms that are triggered by similar things, say a CPU alarm and a memory alarm that spike at the same time, that you can just get one alert about them instead of two, three, four, however many you've got set up. Yeah, one example is like you can do backup on this box or something and bring the CPU to 100% and don't care about it. But if you have IOPS and CPU at the same time, then that's really a problem in your application. So then you can trigger that alarm. So you can ignore 
create less noise, in fact, in your alarming process by having that double alarm system. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So if we can look at the database section, I saw that Aurora with Postgres compatibility gets a couple of features that were already in the MySQL version. Always good to see. In this case, it's Aurora Global Database, which is a pretty big deal if you are multi-region. And uh, user authentication using Kerberos or uh, Active uh, Microsoft AD. Yep. And another thing for everybody, of course, who wants to get the, all the certifications, um, the new database certification. Mm. Is that super new? When was that, when was that um, announced? That was announced at reInvent, I think, and then the, it was in beta, beta and now it's... Uh, but uh, that was supposed to replace the big data one, uh, but now with the COVID-19 as well, they extended uh, the testing regime uh, for big data, so the, you can have even more certs now uh, at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, um, because big data is... And, and by the way, I believe as well, uh, all the certification has been extended as well for six months for it. For everybody who have expired certification, they, they get ex- extended. So check in your uh, IPN partner or in your certification website. Yeah. So I just I just refreshed my memory. Yes, the, the, that announcement did come out only a couple of weeks ago, and it, it, it's it, I, I just think the um, the current uh, s- sort of situation we're all in is really messed with my sense of time. Like, that just seemed like that had been announced so long ago. I thought, you can't be, that can't just be this this month, surely. And surely, sure enough, yes, it was. But um, another thing um, that is worth pointing out already then about certifications is that at the moment it is possible to take all certifications from your home. You still have to sign up and make sure that there's, that you get a certain time slot. But you don't have to go to a center to take the exams. Obviously, and not not touching the mouse from someone other guy who just did a test before you and and uh, sneeze all over it. So that's that's nice. Yeah, and those little tiny screens, you know, you just like they're so small. Yep. Of course, the one downside that a lot of us will probably experience with this is you will need to clean up your office a bit. Do you think? No. They can't be judgmental, can they? <laughs> you don't get points for being me- points off for being messy, surely. <laughs> Only for attempting to cheat, which is how they interpret it. Yeah, right. I see. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. What about the um, Elasticatia Redis Global Data Store too? That's that's kind of that's kind of nice again if you're on the uh, the multi-region bandwagon. Yep. It's again something I haven't had a chance to play with, but yeah, more multi-region is always a good thing, and it's something we see cropping up more and more. Yep, for sure. The one thing we'll save money is the Redshift launch, pause, and resume. Right, um, a lot of the complaint on Redshift was it's an expensive product. You need to run a big cluster, uh, and there is a lot of competition around uh, who offer the separation of compute and, and storage. Now you can stop your compute, and when you don't use it, it doesn't cost you uh, money on the compute, just on the storage, and you can resume your cluster just after that. So that's another hibernation type of, of uh, your Redshift cluster. Uh, people are going to save money with that. Yeah, that's definitely a big thing. I know a fair amount of at least non-prod environments that 
will now shut off their redshifts outside of working hours. Mm. And everybody loves cost savings. Yes, except Jeff Bezos. Even he likes them, right? <laughs> of course he does. That's right. As, assuming that the customer is going to use the saving elsewhere into another product and make him even more addicted to the platform. Right? That's the idea. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Yep. Now, next section is AIML. None of us are really experts in this or even anything remotely to an expert, but we all know that there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Uh, while we can't talk with much knowledge about them, we can still say how nice it is that things have arrived. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, transcribe being able to do automatic contact uh, content redactions kind of a cool feature. So one of the challenges of using services like that for things like building a complaints management system and you've got inbound calls that you're transcribing, one of the, the constant challenges is what do you do in this world of GDPR? What do you do when the customer says their name and address uh, in a call? And the transcription is clever enough to actually figure figure out uh, that that detail and 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 transcribe it for you. So the idea that this could potentially automatically remove that PI data would be a very a very nice feature, I think, if you were working in that space. Or, or credit card number or bank account number, right? When when they get dictated uh, through the phone, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, clean your log of PI information. Yeah, that's good. It's definitely cool. Another one is SenseMaker Ground Truth that it now supports multiple labels on something. So Ground Truth is the surface where you can see an image and you draw boxes around items and you can give that a label. So up until now that was limited to a single label. Now you can instead of just saying hey this is a car, you can say this is a car and this is green just as a very basic example. Let's just move on to the final section, which is a grab bag of other cool stuff that has been released. I think keeping in mind all the mentions we've made of cost savings and things like that, that's the ability to see savings plans recommendations in member accounts is a pretty big thing. Mm. Yeah, especially for managed service providers who haven't been able to access this up till now. So I, I'm actually not 100% sure whether that solves the problem, but I suspect it's probably at least part of the solution. I think it's even just nice to be able to see more clearly where your savings will be instead of just at the high level that you can see, okay, it's mostly my, let's say, big data accounts where all my data crunching clusters are costing us all the money. Another interesting one is that we now have the ability to enable local zones. I'm guessing this is mostly aimed at the future as there aren't that many local zones at the moment. Yeah, there's only one in LA, right? So that's the only one existing. Hopefully we have one in Australia soon. That would be nice. And uh, yeah, you can add it yourself instead of having to open a ticket and so forth. Mm. Yeah, so it, so which which part of Australia do you think will get one first? Perth or Melbourne? Uh, I, I believe there's a lot of banks in Melbourne. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. And Google is opening in 21 in Melbourne. Don't forget that. So. Right. Yeah. And we should run a book. Run and have bets on it. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about bank, global accelerator, bring your own IP. Uh, when people have whitelisting IPs, um, that's really a very good options. You can bring a slash 24 to AWS and use that to your global accelerator to be able to have a fixed IP all over the world and facing your EC2 or load balances or, or, or the product. So, Bring your own IPs. It's uh, going to 
for regulation on the price, you need to have a fixed IP like they used to have in the data center. That's going to be a good product to, to explore. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Anything else either of you wants to mention in this list? Uh, the Connect stuff, per second billing, I guess that's cool. It's nice. Saves money. There was actually another announcement that came too late for this, I think, which was the Connect um, voicemail solution that they released. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of a little bit interested in this because I did the boot camp a couple of weeks ago and, and I've got a couple of customers who are kind of talking to us about, about it. Yeah, so anything that's... They seem to be doing a bit of work on that at the moment. So uh, it's good to see act- activity, I guess. Yep. Connect is, seems a bit of a hot topic at the moment. Um, everybody's interested in it. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, 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 the challenge with it is, is that it's, it's sort of a toolbox. You know, you kind of need to wrap stuff around it to, to make it into a solution. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's quite powerful, uh, and you can do a lot. You can achieve a lot with it. But, um, you know, if you're comparing it to, like often customers are comparing it to other solutions that, that, you know, have solved a lot of the other sorts of problems, um, uh, that, that you'd, you'd have to sort of build build a, a solution for if you if we're using connect but look i think it's it's um it's going to proceed a pace at this point in time i think it'll get a lot of um, a lot of attention probably a lot of love and i think the voicemail solution sort of coming out just you know what a day ago um is probably an indication of of aws being busily beavering away uh wrapping some wrapping some stuff around it to to make it more um make it more consumable what else was there? Uh, AppStream 2, uh, native application mode on Windows PCs. That's kind of, I guess, if, you're, if you use AppStream, it's kind of probably a nice enhancement. What is a native application? Uh, so um, so what, what, what I believe that means, and I'm not a Windows guy, but uh, it's like a, it doesn't run inside a window. So, you, you know, you, you run your AppStream client, um, if you run your application in native mode, it, it acts like a normal Windows application. It's, you know, appears in the taskbar and has its own windows. Uh, so it's a mix. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. You have a shortcut on your desktop and you, you click it and, and yeah. you end up with the app like if it was there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I, mean, I guess that would be nice, uh, nice from a user experience point of view. Yeah, I mean, AppStream, I think it was one of the other ones that um, they mentioned, AWS mentioned in their working from home thing. But I mean, that's one of the other kind of, you know, uh, enablement, at, um, you know, services, I guess, um, potentially if you, if you need to access something that, um, that you need to run centrally, uh, manage it centrally, um, you could potentially use AppStream to do that. Yep, cool. I think that's all the news we'll be discussing today. So. Guy, JM, thank you very much for joining me here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Love to talk tech. I also want to thank this year's sponsors of the user group for support, our gold sponsor Enabler, and our silver sponsors AC3 and CMD Solutions. And as I said earlier, this is the very first of our podcasts. We're hoping to have more for you in the near future. In the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter, as at AWS Melb, that is M-E-L-B, and we have a Slack group that's we're happy for everybody to join in on, and we'll discuss the news there as well, have other discussions, anything like that. You can get an invite to that by going to our website on Melb, again, that's M-E-L-B dot A-W-S-U-G dot org dot A-U, and 
Uh, I hope that you will join me again for our next episode. Thank you.